Austin, do you remember how long it took me to find a podcast platform for us? Forever. I ended up finding one called Anchor, and I initially chose it just because it was free. But it also has a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. They also distributed for us, so that's why we ended up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of our other places. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Everything you need to make a podcast in just one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test? I'm Maddie. I'm Austin. And we are in a new podcast setup today, so we've had to restart three times. Three times. First, the microphone was unplugged. Then we didn't actually start recording. And this time, well, we're just talking about random nonsense. Thankfully, I checked before we got more than a few seconds in. That would have been embarrassing to record an entire podcast and just not actually record it. I actually listened to podcasts where they've had that happen and they were like, we had to redo it. And I had to pretend to react to things that I'd already heard. (gasps) Really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So our new setup, I had been looking online for podcasting equipment and I kept seeing those like trifold barrier things that are soundproofing foam and then the plastic or metal outside, and I realized I have a trifold science fair thing, and we have a egg carton mattress pad we're getting rid of. I'm going to make my own. So we made our own, and you can see where the cats have already attacked it, and currently Draco is eyeballing it from my lap. Good boy, Draco. So we'll see if it sounds any better this week. My main worry is the cats are going to go after this thing while we're recording. But we survived Thanksgiving and did not do Black Friday, so... We did not. Kansas City does this thing called the Plaza Lighting Ceremony, where they have, like, they turn the lights on on Thanksgiving on the Country Club Plaza. We had a Saturday Night Live cast member there. That was so exciting. It was Heidi Gardner. She's from here, and I love her. She's so funny. Actually, overall, it's... It's a reasonably well-orchestrated thing. They've got performers from around the area that come, and it's basically a big to-do that ends with just flipping a switch. But I really love Heidi Gardner. I was so excited to see her. I was less excited when the person in front of me decided to hold their phone up to take pictures of her. I had a perfect view and couldn't even see her through his phone. Yeah, the person in front of me was holding up a tablet, which, okay, phones I can understand, but a tablet? Really? It's actually been really weird, my tolerance of people with their phones at events lately. We went to see Potted Potter last night, which is this touring production where they do all seven Harry Potter books in seven minutes, or 70 minutes. And there's this, well, I won't talk about what, what happened in the show, but at one point it became abundantly obvious that this older woman a few rows ahead of us was just reading Facebook the entire time. It's like, why are you even going to this? Like, she wasn't even there with kids. It was her and her husband and like an adult other person. Yeah, if you're bored and you're like, I just need to look at my phone, just leave. There were yeah. seats out in the in the lobby. Just leave. I know. And she was of an age where I'm sure she complains about them youths in the restaurants checking their phones and whatnot. <laughs> and once there was no way she couldn't know people could see her because of what happened in the show at that moment, she just leaned into it and stayed on her phone and even kind of held it up higher so everybody could really see her phone. Ugh. Now, we are the age where we get blamed for that all the time. It's, you know, those millennials can't put their phones down. Why, they're addicted to their phones. My phone was literally off and in my bag the whole time. Same when I go to movies. Mm -hmm. But especially when you go to live theater, 
You know the actors can see you, right? Yeah, it's like those phones, you're in a dark theater, it lights up your face. So you basically have a big, I'm an asshole light on you that all of the actors can see. I'm actually on the side of the actors who stop the show and call them out. Yep. And that one time that Lynn caught somebody filming in the front row and kept rapping but changed the lyrics to something along the lines of, and you in the first row, I can see you filming, put your damn phone away. I was very proud of him at that moment. We're all, okay, can we go an episode without being proud of Lin-Manuel Miranda? I get it. He's wonderful. He's amazing. I would leave me for him, but he's just too wonderful. Okay, but we know the person I would be more likely to leave you for is Matthew from Downton Abbey. Well, I mean, he is the heir to Downton. And the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. He has his own castle already. (gasps) Wow. And he can sing, like, come on. Yeah. It's okay. If I'd leave here anybody, it would be for Lady Mary. Because I have to get those cutting words in somehow. You'd leave me for Maggie Smith. I would. I absolutely would. Well, let's get into it. Oh, and at the end of your of the podcast, you'll get to hear us open our advent calendars. We're recording this on December 1st. We have been waiting for this for weeks. Yeah. We One have... is the Harry Potter Funko Pops calendar. And the other is the Harry Potter Lego advent calendar. <laughs> to give you an idea, we already mentioned that we went to see Potted Potter we record from a Harry Potter office. We painted the whole thing. We put shelves up that are held up by magic. Like, we're a little into it. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the episode, we're going to open our first day of the advent calendars. And I'll post a picture on my Twitter later, just like I'll post a picture of our lovely new podcast area. It's so lovely. It goes very well with our bespoke Harry Potter office. <laughs> you can't see any of the office in the background. No. This, uh... This trifold is a little bit taller than your average sound barrier thing. Yeah, but it's okay because we are a little bit louder than your average podcasters. Oh, crud. I'm going to have to pause for a second because my computer only printed one page of my notes. So please hold. Are we recording? We're recording. Yeah, the damn printer wouldn't print the first couple of pages, just the last two. So I'm going to be one of those damn millennials on their phones trying to do this, which sucks because I like to kind of flip back and forth. Here I am. At a premium spot at a live podcast reporting recording, and there's someone right next to me on their damn phone. I seriously hope that nobody's who's at these live theatrical productions are actively podcasting from them. Okay, so I've got a new plan for for our next <laughs> podcast. Uh, we just record one from a live theatrical production. See how long it takes us to get kicked out? I mean, we are in the Midwest, so... People are too polite to kick out here. Yeah, way too polite. All right, so we are a podcast, because we didn't say what we do earlier. Oh, no! If you're here, I would assume you know. Yeah. We talk about things we either didn't learn in school, or only learned part of, or were taught the entirety of just incorrectly. And last week... Austin talked about the history of Thanksgiving, and I talked about the history of Black Friday. So I go first today. You get to go first today. I feel like we cover a lot of American history, but we agreed that we were going to try to find something a little lighthearted this week. Yeah. And so I typed in to Google funny things that happened in history, and I came across this gentleman named Timothy Dexter. I have never heard of Timothy Dexter. Which is interesting because he was a, not peer, but co-inhabitant of the world that the Founding Fathers lived in. And I don't mean he was just some dude walking around existing at the same time. So he's not like Revolutionary War, like Forrest Gump. He wasn't like, and I was there too, Jenny. Well, Forrest actually did stuff in that. Yeah. But he kind of was the Forrest Gump of his time, except for not charming or kind. Oh, <laughs> but he definitely was a bit of a uh, 
Life is like a box of chocolates, but I'm going to manipulate everything to get the ones that I want to get. Oh, okay. He was that kind of... Yeah, but he was also... Well, I'll just get into it. Get into it. Go ahead. I use stuff from the New England Historical Society, Priceonomics, Wikipedia, and I think I might reference a couple others throughout this. So just so I've cited my sources like a good student. Timothy Dexter was, in many ways, the personification of the American dream. His family had immigrated to the United States in about 1650. They never made any money. So he was born about a century later in 1747 in Malden, Massachusetts. His is a total rags-to-riches story that would be completely unbelievable if there wasn't historical evidence. Now, that said, the historical evidence does jump around a little bit. People put things in different timelines for him. There are only a few things that have definite dates attached. So you might have heard, if you've heard his story at all, things in a different order. But every resource I went to had them in a different order. So I kind of pieced them together the best I could. (laughs) He was actually a really important entrepreneur in the early United States and a well-known eccentric. So he was like... Kind of Elon Musky. Yeah, I was trying to think of a good comparison, and Elon Musk was the best I could come up with. As Priceonomics put it, though he constantly yearned to be accepted, Lord Dexter oh. refused to compromise his strange ways, and in doing so, he paved the way for all aspiring American weirdos. <laughs> So like I said, his family never became successful. So he was born into poverty. And if he had any education, it ended by the time he was eight years old. He was not illiterate, but his spelling and grammar makes him darn close. The longest he could read was 10 minutes without getting exhausted or bored or whatever. At eight, he was sent to work on a farm. And then at 14, he went on to be a leather working apprentice in Charleston, South Carolina, and then was sent back to Boston to finish his his apprenticeship. He finished at the age of 21, and on his last day, he was given a Freeman suit, which he sold for $8.20, and then supposedly he walked to Newburyport from Boston, which was 37 miles. That's a long walk. Google Maps says it would take 12 hours and 21 minutes if he didn't stop. I mean, he might not have. What was he going to do, stop and read the newspaper? (laughs) However, some reports say that he just went to Charleston, which is right, Charlestown, which is right there. But regardless, both stories say he carried a bindle, one of those hobo sticks with the bandana on the end. Oh my god. He bought some land and then he married a witch, a rich widow. <gasps> this who, is a real American story. He just married rich and then... <laughs> who was a mother of four, owned a home, and was nine years older than him. Her name was Elizabeth Frothingham. <gasps> now, she was not wealthy because of her deceased husband. She was wealthy because she was one of the original Avon ladies. Really? It wasn't really Avon, probably, but she was an MLM. She went door-to-door selling stuff and made a really big amount of money doing now, that. Did she, was it, was it a pyramid scheme one or was she just like on her own? It doesn't say anywhere I was able to find, but my guess is she wasn't on her own. My guess is that one of her friends says, I can work from home and make $2 billion a year now while working part-time and raising my children. But first, I need to send everyone on Facebook a million messages about how they can buy my products and help me out. And then guilt them by putting videos of themselves crying because they didn't meet their sales goal and they're just trying to help people. (gasps) We have opinions. 
as you might I've actually met some people who do sell these things successfully and well, but they're the ones who don't bug everybody. They're the ones who are like, hey, this is what I do for a living. If you're ever interested, send me a message. Now I'm going to talk about other things in my life. (laughs) Uh, Timothy Dexter was not well liked in Charlestown, where John Hancock and one of the richest men in the country, Thomas Russell, both lived, among other wealthy and important people. (laughs) He was uneducated and not well versed in basic etiquette, so he was not considered an equal to them. He thought the way he'd become an equal was to get a public office. Oh no, I'm drawing some modern parallels and I don't like this. So he kept insisting he wanted to have a public office. Look how much money I have. I deserve a public office. Please give me something to do so I can be important like you. So they finally wore down and they gave him the official title of Informer of Deer. Informer of Deer. Yes, like Bambi. Like, what does he do? Is he like yell out and like run out, read the newspaper to the deer? Because he wasn't going to read that newspaper. Oh, he just yelled at the deer. You are not at the deer crossing sign, sir. You need to go to where the deer crossing sign is. Do you have a badge? Because I would take that office if it came with a badge. Actually, this is a job that still exists, but it's not called that. They are called things like wildlife officers. Oh, he's he's basically the game warden. Yeah, his job was to monitor the deer population and report on it. That's an important job. Yeah. Except there had not been deer in the area for 20 years by the time they gave him the post. (laughs) (laughs) They gave him a completely useless title and job just to make him leave them alone. I mean... They basically sent him snipe hunting. They really did. Yeah. Except there were probably snipes around there. More likely than deer. Yeah, well, snipe hunting, though, it's not really, I mean, it's a thing here that you use to make fun of people, and they usually have you, like, walk out and, like, bang sticks together. Kind of like in, um, oh, Parent Trap, where they send the the evil stepmother snipe hunting, or not snipe hunting, she has to ward off mountain lions or something. So yeah, informer of deer. Okay, oh, this always bugs me, because we used to talk about, oh yeah, it's a real snipe hunt, it's a real snipe hunt. Snipes don't exist. Then I was reading, like, a wildlife book. And there's a bird called a snipe. It there exists. Is. And I'd seen them before and I didn't know what it was. And when I asked, it's like, what is that bird? Oh, it's just a waiting bird. It was a snipe. So I've been lied to my entire life. Snipes are real birds, but I think, don't they describe them as mammals when they send you snipe yeah. hunting? So hashtag snipe truth. He also continued his leather work and sold blubber because they were in a whaling area. <laughs> and by the end of the revolution, he had saved up several thousand dollars, which he had spent on continental currency. And I can see from the look on your face that you also never learned about continental currency. I did not learn about continental currency. All right. Well, according to Wikipedia, which I trust beyond all other sources, prior to its existence, the colonies predominantly used foreign coin because it was hard to mint money on this side of the pond. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Continental currency was used during the revolution to fund the war. Then it depreciated like whoa and was basically worthless after the revolution ended (laughs) because they had overprinted it to help fund the war. And British gangs came in and counterfeited it. Yes! Fun fact, the dollar amounts ranged from one-sixth of a dollar to $80, including ones of one-third dollar and $55. I feel like this was definitely done by committee. This feels like it was committee work. This feels like trying to convert, you know, knuts to galleons. Oh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. They depreciated to as little as one-fortieth of their amount. So hold on, one fortieth of one third of a dollar is math I can't do. It's like one one hundred and twentieth of a dollar. Well, this turned into a lot of debates, as you might imagine, because the government had printed this money. They had forced people to take this money. And now their money was worthless. So they decided to 
honor the money, quote unquote, by buying it back from them for 1% of their initial worth. So if you had an $80 note, if my math is right, you now have an 80 cent note. Oh. Alexander Hamilton, by the way, was the one who argued that the money should not be worthless. Like he was the strongest arguer that like, okay guys, we gave them this mandate and now we're making them broke, come on. 1% was the best he could get, but he got him something. But there's Thomas Dexter or Timothy Dexter. I keep wanting to call him Thomas because everybody back then was named Thomas. Yep. Timothy Dexter had made the weird decision to buy the bills from the wealthy who just wanted to get rid of them before this 1% thing happened. So not only had he accumulated his own wealth in this, he had bought it from everybody else. By the time the government agreed to honor that 1% amount, he had saved up enough to make him ridiculously wealthy. Even at 1%? Even at 1%. There is some speculation that he had insider information and that's why he thought to buy all of these things. But remember, he was also wildly hated. This is giving me like flashbacks to watching the big short when they were like, oh, yeah, let's buy all these junk bombs. Like, what are you talking about? Then they're like, boom. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, it was awesome. But being rich, he was like, yes, I'm going to be accepted now. No, that's not what happened. He was just a weird guy. And he refused to accept any responsibility for no one liking him. Hello, Fezzik. Hi, Fezzik. There is no possible way that it could be me. They're the problem. So he and his family moved to Newburyport. Newburyport was a fairly wealthy area, but it was also supposed to not have that caste system that other areas did. Using that money, he bought a house on State Street that was so large, it still stands today. It's burned down since then, but they rebuilt it. It is now the Newburyport Public Library. <laughs> that's how big it is. It's a big, that's a big building. He also bought a fleet of shipping boats a stable of cream-colored horses, and a carriage with his initials on it. Remember, this is post-Revolutionary War America, not 16th century France. He was over the top in his ho- in the way he decorated his house in every way. Like, there were pillars and statues and a series of very large outhouses. Oh, well, of course. You gotta have, the, like, the nice big outhouses. And then he started making more questionable business decisions, usually based on suggestions from his neighbors who believed they would ruin him this way. <laughs> he was not, the, the belief is that he was not smart enough to know that they were trying to trick him. He was incredibly lucky. He started by building ships and sending them along with 42,000 bed warmers. You know, when you watch period pieces, those long metal things that they stick yeah. between blankets? 42,000 of those to the West Indies. But he didn't call them bed warmers. He called them ladles, knowing that the West Indies had a huge molasses industry. People started buying them in threes and fours and dozens to scoop their hot molasses because these are big. He marked them up by nearly 80% and sold all 42,000 of them. (laughs) Then he began to gather up stray cats. And I see the worry on Austin's face. The cats were okay. He sent them to the Caribbean and warehouse owners bought them to control the mice population. Oh, oh no. According to the Nature Research Ecology and Evolution Community, cats are not native to the Caribbean. No, they are not. I don't know if he is responsible for them being there or if this is something someone had already done, but they're... Are enough stray cats today that it's not uncommon for Caribbean hotels to have like resident cat colonies. So this guy might be responsible for introducing a a nature menace to the Caribbean. Yeah, oh, I think like domestic cats have caused like more bird extinctions than anything else. It's 
Like, there is, like, this one small island where a single cat caused the extinction of an entire species of flightless bird. Yes, we have four cats. They live inside. Yep. They are not contributing to the downfall of our bird, or in our case, badger population. We've got a badger in our backyard. I'm obsessed with him. He's scary. He's terrifying. Then he bought 340 tons of whale bones, just as stays for corsets became a necessary item because corsets reached the United States from France right at that time. They were also used for a bunch of other things like typewriters because whale bones were the equivalent of plastic back then. They were used for everything. Wow. This is pure luck. He did not know this was going to happen. He marked them up by 75% and made a fortune selling whale bones. (laughs) He also, this is him being a dick, He was talking to people in the West Indies and said, I sent a text that all of them must have one Bible in every family, or if not, they would have gone to hell. So he sold Bibles to people in the West Indies because he threatened them with damnation otherwise and made $47,000. That's amazing. I mean, I kind of hate this guy, but at the same time... I love him. This is the most American asshole I have ever heard of. So there's a British idiom that is selling coals to Newcastle. It basically means you're engaging in a pointless action. Newcastle is a coal-rich area that has made its money through that industry. So selling coal to them is a damn foolish accent. Think of it like trying to go to Google headquarters and sell them electronics. That is what this is. My family has a equal as a idiom that is similar but awful. It is... He could sell us to an Eskimo. Your family doesn't have accents. They don't, but I feel like for me to say that, I have to say it with the accent. Well, as we've talked about, Dexter was not well-liked. He was known to be uneducated and not very bright. So someone told him that he should try to sell coal to Newcastle. And he did. What? He was not aware of this idiom or why it would be a bad idea to sell coal to Newcastle. So he loaded up some ships and sent a bunch of coal to Newcastle. When the ships arrived, the Newcastle coal miners began to strike. Not because they had arrived, just by coincidence. Oh my god! So he literally sold coal to Newcastle and made a shit ton of money doing so. Just like he sold those electronics to the Google headquarters and ice to those Eskimos. That's just, my god, this is, it couldn't happen to a worse guy. Thanks, I hate this. In spite of all of this, he was shockingly still not respected. He was referred to as, quote, a vain, uneducated, weak, coarse, drunken, cunning man, low in his tastes and habits, constantly striving for foolish display and attention. Even his wife didn't like him. This is, this is Seinfeld. Mm Mm-hmm. We could, okay, HBO, I know you listen to us. I know you're struggling to find someone to replace Game of Thrones. Do this guy, but in like Seinfeld style or like Curb Your Enthusiasm. I feel like it would work. This guy's already been a TV show character named Ross Geller. Oh, yeah. I will go into detail about that in a little bit, actually. Was he he stealing dinosaurs? I mean, he had whale bones. Whale bones. His wife, like I said, didn't like him and would go off on him saying that, you know, eventually you're going to fail and we're going to be ruined. So he started to tell her she was a ghost and refused to speak of her like she was alive. (laughs) He treated her like she was already dead. I mean, I do that to you sometimes when you're being really annoying. I can still hear her now. Surprisingly, she moved out. Oh. And then his son moved in. His son was a lot like him, 
And ultimately, their big, expensive house was turned into the equivalent of a brothel. (laughs) And the house was destroyed, including curtains that were previously owned by the Queen of France. They were covered with um, stains. Yeah. Yeah, which apparently were... I think the words they used were unseemly and didn't smell so great. Okay, uh, it's like maybe maybe they had just been spitting their tobacco juice on the curtains. In a brothel? Maybe it was tobacco juice. <laughs> <laughs> Further proving his sanity, he sold the house and bought an even bigger one in Chester, New Hampshire this time, and began to insist that people call him Lord Dexter. This is in America. We don't have lords. He insisted he was called Lord Dexter. He was beaten to hell by a lawyer, likely after pursuing that lawyer's wife. So he sold the home and bought an even bigger one. (laughs) On that grounds, he built an outdoor museum with about 40 images of a random assortment of historical figures, including kings, Adam and Eve, and of course himself. They were commissioned from these really well-known and prominent European artists, but then he painted them with these really bright and garish colors and had inscriptions painted underneath them, which he had changed regularly to meet his own vision of what should have happened in history. He was actively (laughs) revising history and everybody knew it. On the one of himself, though, he had written, I am the first in the East, the first in the West, and the greatest philosopher in the Western world. This guy sounds like someone we know from modern politics. He certainly does, and I've been biting my tongue so hard. His statue was huge. Huge? Huge. uh, Tell me about the hands on this statue. Well, it doesn't say anything about the hands, but we do know that they cost around $2,000 each, which was roughly twice the amount he had paid for everything else he owned. (laughs) And then, since it was a museum, people would come by to look, and when young women would come by, he would sexually assault them. Huge. Huge. As I mentioned, he would have them repaint the inscriptions, and one time a painter came over to work on the Thomas Jefferson one, and he wrote author of the Declaration of Independence underneath it, which Jefferson was. Dexter insisted that he had written the Constitution, which Jefferson had a hand in but did not single-handedly write. The artist kept insisting, no, he wrote the Declaration, not the Constitution. So Dexter shot at him. Oh, was this on Fifth Avenue by chance? (laughs) He missed. Okay. And then just looked at the guy and said constitution very calmly the painter wrote constitution (laughs) i'll say there's one big difference i've noticed between a current historical figure and this guy this guy was a successful businessman for a while true true i mean sure his brothel didn't do so well but at least he didn't have five casinos fail in atlantic city that would be crazy and i have no evidence that he ever tried to sell steaks he might have maybe those whale bones were steaks at first he sold blubber i mean people eat whale i think Yeah. Dexter actually did start to make friends at this time. One of them was named John P. I don't know what the P stood for. Who had been denied a teaching post, but he was from a wealthy family, so he opened his own school. Where, you know Cliff Clavin from Cheers? Yes. The guy who just, the postal worker who always had facts that he would tell people that were invariably wrong? Mm -hmm. That's what he taught at this school. He would go on rambling, contradictory stories. And then he also began to teach Timothy Dexter all about science. (laughs) So Timothy Dexter became an educated man at last. He also became friends with a woman named Madame Hooper, who was a widow who had become a fortune teller and gave him astrological advice to help guide his life. I mean, honestly, at this point, this might be the best advice he's gotten because she's not actively sabotaging him. I mean, he gave her tea in payment for this, so she was getting something out of it. Yeah. And then he decided 
You know what these noblemen over in Europe, they hire poet laureates to write things for them. So he hired a poet laureate who was a 20-year-old fish seller he had met, a dude who was just selling fish out of a wagon. He read that the Italians gave their poets crowns of mistletoe. So he made this man a crown out of parsley. <laughs> and he made he, him... he, he, uh, Did he garnish his wages? And he made the man write poems about Dexter and how great he was and nothing else. <laughs> this poor guy. I hope he got paid well enough to leave the fish business. If, well, if not, he always had a very nice... He always could dress his fish very well with some nice parsley on top. Apparently parsley was the only thing he had on hand. <laughs> and then in 1802, our beloved Dexter became an author. He wrote a book called A Pickle for the Knowing Ones. You might have it at the library. I see the face. No, no, I'm, I'm trying to parse out this title and I can't. It's like A Pickle for the Knowing Ones? It was 24 pages long and contained zero punctuation. Okay, so I've, I've seen this document. Usually it's in the comment section on a YouTube video. <laughs> it became ridiculously popular. He was giving it away for free. And I have a feeling it was like when my cousin got a Scientology pamphlet at the, <gasps> at the plaza lighting ceremony. Uh, chapter nine, don't do anything illegal. We really enjoyed it. Thanks, Scientologists. It was... It was entertaining. So it had eight reprintings. But after the first one, he was told that the punctuation thing was a problem. So at the second printing, he wrote in 13 lines about punctuation. He was like, this is a period, or maybe they called it a full stop back then. This is what this is for. This is a comma. This is what this is for. Put them in wherever you think they belong in this book. Oh. It was basically a grammar test from hell. <laughs> so what you're saying is you want me to get you this book. It's available for free online. And you want to punctuate it, don't you? I kind of do. You're broken. I didn't want to torture myself, so I didn't actually read it. I found a link to it. But I did find a summary by a man named Irving Wallace, who was a contemporary of his. It was, quote, an egotistical, opinionated course defense of Dexter by Dexter against all enemies who were anti-Dexter. It was <laughs> Dexter's Twitter account. Oh, my God. <laughs> now we're getting to his funeral. His funeral was quite the event. He died on October 26th, 1806, left money for Newburyport's poor, and his statues were sold, these $2,000 statues, between 50 cents and $5 a piece. The ones that didn't sell were burned. He also seemed to have a bit of a crisis of conscience. Once he knew he was dying, he rewrote his will so that his wife and his children all got some money and nobody was left with nothing. But that's not when the funeral happened. The funeral happened before he died. What? So, you know how we talked about Ross Geller earlier? Yeah. So, I think Ross Geller was based on this guy. Like Ross, he was lucky, not good. Like Ross, he considered women to be nothing more than sex objects. And like Ross, he hosted his own funeral while hiding in another room, waiting to see how people reacted. Remember that episode? I remember that. Oh, God. Somehow, I blocked that one out. Because it's not even the top 10 of the scummy things Ross did. He had a tomb created, which was actually a huge room that was nicely decorated and well-ventilated in the basement of a summer home. And a beautifully made coffin, which he actually liked so much he slept in regularly. Guests came to the funeral and he watched to see who was having the appropriate emotional reactions. His wife was laughing and smiling during it, so he started to panic. There's some evidence that she might have known this was fake, some mm -hmm. maybe not. 
So he came to her in the kitchen while he's supposed to be dead and in the funeral and began to beat the shit out of her for not grieving enough. Well, the guests come into the kitchen hearing this, see him hitting her with a cane with a big ass smile across his face. And then he went and partied with them like they hadn't just attended his funeral. That was the weird historical fact that led me to him. What? So to this day, there is debate over if he was a genius or just a lucky idiot. It's, I don't know. This is, he is just asshole Forrest Gump. Yeah. Yeah, he had, if you read any of his quotes, which I didn't really emphasize, he couldn't spell at all. He didn't care about punctuation. He didn't know when people were making fun of him. But he lucked out over and over and over and became one of the richest men in America and one of our first major entrepreneurs. Pure luck. Yeah, that's just, this is, it's right. You told me that there's like all this, this like contemporary historical information about this guy that this happened. I wouldn't believe it. Like, if I had heard about this, it's like, oh, yeah, this is like a John Henry or like a, like some folk hero thing, not an actual person. Actually, John Henry was a real person. Paul Bunyan. He was a Paul Bunyan. Yeah, no, this was a 100% real person who did all of these things and was widely complained about by famous people of the time. So we still have writings from them complaining about this guy. We know he was real. We know he faked his own funeral. We know he had these statues erected in honor of himself and then in honor of other figures with fake information. We know that he sold coal to Newcastle and made his money that way. So, like I said, he is the personification of the American dream. A rags-to-riches story, except in his case, he didn't really have to try hard at all. No. He just got lucky. God, this is... I don't know how I can follow this up. (laughs) Well, then I got some questions for you about whether or not these things would be on a test. All right. Will Timothy Dexter be on a test? No. In a world where Timothy Dexter is on a test, will the fact that his riches largely came from bad advice intended to ruin him be on it? You know, I'll say yes, because that makes it funny. Will the fact that he ruined the Queen of France's curtains in that special way be on the test? Depends on the grade, but probably no. I don't think even in high school they would go into that one. Even in college. No, that's a grad school level question. Mm -hmm. When you learn about brothel stains, you usually have to be going for a master's degree. That's true. Um, My master's degree was entirely in brothel stains. Now, if we want to take his side for a moment and say he was being bullied... Will the fact that his bullies were prominent early American figures be on the test? They wouldn't be framed as bullies. They'd be framed as popular American figures who are dealing with this ridiculous jackass. And that is the story of Timothy Dexter. That was a journey I did not expect (laughs) to go on. Well, we needed to do something a little lighthearted, and even though he was a sexually assaulting wife-beating piece of shit, for the most part, it was actually kind of lighthearted. Yeah. So what is your lighthearted story for me today? Well, um, mine, it's kind of lighthearted, but it's mostly weird, and it's about ancient Egypt. Ooh. Kind of. Off the top of your head, when you think about ancient Egypt, what do you think about? Um, I think about those paintings that tell the stories. I can't remember what they're called. Hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics. I was going to say cryptograms, but I know that's not right. Um, I think about mummies. I think about the fact that they mummified their cats and often made their servants basically have a slow death in the tombs. And I think about Cleopatra, which I think was like kind of only weirdly tangentially related to any of it. And... Obviously, King Tut, because he was the boy king, which is why you learn about him in school. Yeah, that's amazing, because we all know about King Tut. 
But King Tut was not a remarkable pharaoh in any way, shape, or form. But what was he, 14? He was 18 or 19, they think. When he died or when he... When he died. Okay. King Tut, or King Tutankhamun, was pharaoh at the end of the 18th dynasty as a part of the quote-unquote new kingdom. And he died around 1325 BCE, or BC, if you will. Let's stick with BCE. BCE. before like. Before Common Era. Yep. And... He was a little bit on the inbred side. His, I mean, who wasn't back then? His father was a heretic who was basically trying to destroy the old Egyptian religion and the old cults and customs and put up his own new things. Then when he died, King Tut is mostly known for reinstating these new things and tearing apart everything his father did. He had a deformed foot and he walked with a cane. Uh-huh. He had a cleft palate, scoliosis, several strains of malaria. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was married to his half-sister. Like, I knew he had some physical deformities. We never learned that in school. That's just one of those things that popped up later on. Yeah. I didn't know about the malaria. I'm curious to know how they figured that out. Oh, they uh, when they ran some tests on him, they found, like, signs that he had malaria. Okay. Which, because, you know, those mummies were so well-preserved, they can still find this stuff to this day. And they're not sure how he died, but he did die without an heir, and it was the end of his particular, like, family line. And that was King Tut. That was all he did. End of podcast. That is it. But why is do we know so much about King Tut and we learn about King Tut when we don't learn anything about Ramses II, who is like the big deal pharaoh who actually did shit, or like any of the others, or these thousands of years of Egyptian dynasties? Like, I think I learned a little about... The other ones, but that's because that was one of the topics that was covered repeatedly when I moved. Like, the Civil War I covered repeatedly, mm-hmm. and then Egypt got covered repeatedly. Yeah. So, I mean, Egypt, there's a lot of Egyptian history. Like, the Sphinx was made sometime, they think, in the 4th Dynasty about 6,000 years ago. And we know a lot about the Sphinx because an Egyptian pharaoh decided to unearth the thing and, like, record some stuff about it a few thousand years ago. And they've had to re-unearth the Sphinx a few times because it keeps getting buried in sand. So Egypt's old, and we only learn about King Tut, who didn't really do anything. Why do we learn about King Tut? The answer about why we learn so much about King Tut and why everyone's fascinated by King Tut is really weird. It has to do with the fact that we have been robbing Egyptian graves for thousands of years. Right. And that we used to snort mummy dust, and we thought mummies were medicine, and we just used them for everything. It's like basically everyone who conquered Egypt robbed a bunch of these pharaohs to him. And we even like found like signs of treasure hunters from thousands of years ago trying to tunnel into and around the Sphinx looking for hidden chambers. Are there booby traps like Home Alone? No. That's a bummer because movies told me there were. If there were, they have long since disintegrated or we haven't found them. Again, there's 6,000 years of Egyptian history. We might not have just found any booby traps. What if Home Alone is really based on people trying to break into a mummy's tomb? That would have been amazing. So Macaulay Culkin, we accept the fact that he is one of the undead. He's in Chicago. He probably escaped from the Natural History Museum. Very true. Yeah. Macaulay Culkin is the reincarnation of King Tut. Done. Yeah. Oh my God. He is the boy king. He had all his traps. And obviously the two robbers are Osiris and Horus. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So we were using mummies as medicine going all the way back to ancient Roman times in which can you guess who I'm about to talk about? Is it our good friend Pliny the Elder? It's our good friend Pliny the Elder. Hi, Pliny! He thought mummies were, had many medicinal purposes, and their mummy bitumen had lots of healing powers. Their mummy bitumen? Bitumen. Like, basically mummy tar. 
was a medicine that would help cure lots of things. What is it? How do you spell that? Because I was hearing bitchy men. B-I-T-U-M-E-N. Okay. It's like tar. I like mine better. And of course, so this has been going on for thousands of years, but it exploded when Napoleon conquered Egypt and a period of time known as Egyptomania started. It was Egyptian architecture and artifacts had a big impact on American culture. The uh, Washington Monument, also known as America's Penis, was in <laughs> fact based on these ancient Egyptian like styluses. Styles? Oh my gosh, I can't read my own handwriting. I thought it was a Roman thing. No, it's Egyptian because they got it from the Egyptians. <laughs> Yeah, the Romans were known for stealing stuff from other cultures. Yeah. And it also impacted art, impacted fashion, and people would like to have these Egyptian artifacts in their homes as conversation pieces, including mummies and parts of mummies. Like the lady on Hoarders who had the dead rat that she wanted to keep as a conversation piece. Yeah, it's ex- exactly like that. Ew. Yeah. Mummy unwrapping parties became a really popular thing. These were, like, publicized. Newspapers would write about mummy unwrapping parties. They would have them in, like, surgical suites so they could have, like, rows of people looking down as they unwrap these mummies. Because not only was it interesting to see these unwrap these ancient mummies, but they'd also find, like, weird stuff in them. Like, little trinkets and baubles and just talismans wrapped in with these mummies. So it's kind of like when you get those, when you bought those ca- candles that had the jewelry in them. So as the candle melted, you get jewelry. The fragrant jewels, yes. It was a lot like that. It's like, what's going to be in this mummy? It was the YouTube unboxing videos of the 18th century. Yeah, PSA, don't take sleeping pills and also have access to a computer or phone. Otherwise, you'll end up with fragrant jewels. And if you do end up with fragrant jewels, don't take sleeping pills and then decide, you know what? I want to see what this ring is right now. And start tearing apart a, melt, a melting red candle in the bathroom and leave red wax everywhere so the bathroom looks like a murder scene. You know, that is one of your favorite things to make fun of me for, though, so you're welcome. It's, oh man, it's like my one victory in marriage has been this. And I'm gonna, I'm not, I can't forget it. It's the only time I'm gonna win. <laughs> Again, we saw use, use mummies as medicine. They would actually like grind them up and snort them. There's an even a pro- big problem with people selling counterfeit mummies uh-huh. to apothecaries. They would just basically take prisoners and wrap them up, or like they'd rob bodies, wrap them up in rags, and let them dry out, then sell them as official, as like, you know, authentic mummies. People still do that kind of stuff today yeah. with like the different animals that you're supposed to be able to dry out and grind up, and people have been poisoned that way. Yeah, this is like that, but it was human remains. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, mummies were also used as a paint pigment. It was called mummy brown, and it was used in a lot of, like, it was the expensive paint back then. Ew. Yep. Uh, they were also used as paper. Like, the actual mummies were used as paper? The, uh, they'd take their linen and use them as paper, and things at the time would sell themselves as being printed on real mummy paper, which they weren't. But hilariously, one of the big things that I, I learned about, which was actually false about mummies is that the mummies were actually burned as, like, railroad fuel. They weren't. That was a joke told by Mark Twain that people <laughs> took seriously. I feel like that's happened several times with things Mark Twain said. Yeah. So every, next time someone says, oh, yeah, they burned mummies as railway fuel. It's like, no, Mark Twain lied to you because he thought it was funny. And I guarantee you, Mark Twain's ghost... Probably is, still thinks this is hilarious. Probably thinks this is hilarious. So... So the key here, guys, is to remember that if you're very smart, 
never make a joke because people will believe you. Yeah. Thank goodness you and I don't have to worry about that. Nope. Yeah, because no, we, we warn people not to use anything on this podcast as truth. And because we openly admit we're not very smart. Nope. You're the smart one. That's scary. It was real scary. They were also used as fertilizer. An English company bought 180,000 mummified cats. Oh. That was roughly 19 tons of mummified cat. And ground them up and used them as fertilizer in the English countryside. That's how you get ghost cats. They found one of these cat skulls like later in a field and it's currently in the British Natural History Museum. After about a hundred years of mummies and everything being looted out of Egypt as a very lucrative business, there wasn't a lot left. They thought they had found every Egyptian mystery that was to be found in the 18th century. So in 1922, when a British archaeologist, Howard Carter, discovered King Tut's tomb, it was shocking and amazing. And it was well documented and we were able to see all these treasures and everything. And let me guess, by this time we were smart enough to not mess with anything or ruin any part of it. Well, we we ruined large parts of it. Uh-huh. But we didn't ruin as much as, like, people who were just trying to make a quick buck off of selling stuff. And they did use some, like, they did record a lot of things with this so we have an idea about where things were, how things are situated, more so than we had in the past. We are still really good at ruining ancient artifacts, mm-hmm. but now we do it for the Insta. Fun thing, the modern archaeologists have actually, they found some tombs and they aren't opening them yet because they want to have better technology and better tools and they don't want to ruin it for future archaeologists. So they are actually saving some of these. Like we would save like your Butterfingers to be the last candy you eat out of all your Halloween candy. I love Butterfingers. They're the best. That's like the one commercial that works really well in me. I see those commercials and I'm like, I really want a Butterfinger right now. Is that why you like threw a lobster at me when I tried to steal your Butterfinger? You better not lay a finger on my Butterfinger. Okay, that tomb they recently unearthed that they made this big show of opening and it was filled with red liquid. Was that Egyptian? That was Egyptian. That was super gross. Super gross. And also, we all got cursed. Look what's happened since we did that. I'm glad you mentioned curses. Because, so also, this is a fun fact about King Tut. You talked about how he was so obscure. That's the reason his tomb was untouched. Nobody outside of like a very small set of academics knew that King Tut even existed. He'd been mostly wiped out of history over time and had been completely obscure. That's why no one had really robbed from this tomb yet is because no one thought to look for King Tut. That and the academics were smart enough to not tell people because they were tired of these tombs getting robbed. Like even then he was like a sub footnote in academia. So he was just as obscure as you can get. And that's the reason he was saved all this time. And I love this quote, quote. When they first looked in there, he could say, you can see the details of the room emerge slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere, the glint of gold. Is that when the rock comes out as one of the ancient mummies who's going to kill you? No, that's when Brendan Fraser shows up. We haven't gotten to the rock yet. That's okay. in the second one. Okay. So, oh, which by the way, that CGI scorpion rock, that was awful. Brendan Fraser, I want you to redo The Mummy too, but with some better CGI, and just maybe put The Rock in some, like, makeup. I will say that The Mummy ride at Universal Studios is the best ride outside of the Harry Potter area. It was, it starts off as, like, this cheesy, cheesy thing, then it turns into a roller coaster and everything's on fire. It's great! I recommend it. I do not recommend the Jurassic Park ride. You're the only person on that ride who got wet. Which me? Is... Oh, no, no. Me and the complaining kid sitting in front of us. 
This was awesome. There was this pair of grandparents and their grandkids there. And the grandson wanted no part of any of this. Everything was, I don't like this. Why did you make me come? And then the water happened. I got soaked and I hate being wet. But this kid also got soaked and the grandmother just got the biggest smile on her face. (laughs) I was so happy for her and the kid just sulked, but he shut up. Be nice to your grandparents, man. If they're paying for you to go to Universal, be nice. It's almost like he was cursed. But this was Jurassic Park. Is this the curse of Jeff Goldblum? Yeah. Jeff Goldblum, the mummy, same thing. Revenge Revenge finds a way. Revenge finds a way. So let's start talking about this curse. Amongst the cursed victims of this curse on King Tut's tomb, there was a pet canary that was killed and eaten by a cobra. We've talked about canaries here before and how they never had good luck in history. No. This one was in which, you know, cobras were a sign of the Egyptian royalty. So mm-hmm. this was a sign. It was a canary. One of the archaeologists killed me. Then uh, Lord Carnarvon, who was the guy who was funding this entire expedition, died of blood poisoning after a mosquito bite got infected. Oh. And allegedly, even though there's no office at the time, it was in the same spot as a mark on King Tut's cheek. That seems real. That seems very real. Then there was a Sir Bruce Ingram. His house burned down twice because Carter gave him a mummy's hand with a scarab bracelet that had on this, Cursed be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Then there was George Gould, who was an, an American who just came to visit the tomb. He fell ill shortly after visiting and died of pneumonia a few months later. There was Aubrey Herbert. He was the brother of Lord Carnarvon, who died of complications after dental surgery five months after his brother died from being around King Tut's tomb. Then there was Hugh Evelyn White. So he was one of the guys excavating the tomb. After several of the other excavators had died, he hung himself and allegedly wrote, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear in his own blood. So he ripped himself open, wrote this in his blood, then hanged himself? Yeah. That's overkill, man. Yep, super overkill. Then there was Aaron Ember, another archaeologist, whose house burned down, and he went back in to save his manuscript and died. The manuscript was entitled The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Then there was Richard Bethel, Lord Carnarvon's secretary, who was also present when they opened the tomb. He was murdered mysteriously at a gentleman's club. Did gentleman's club mean the same thing then as it does no, now? No, this was, it was, it wasn't a, let's throw $1 bills at a sad single mom. It was a, let's sit around and smoke cigars and read the newspaper. That sounds like way more fun. So much more fun. Even the cigar parts. He'd also had a house fire. And then there was Sir Archibald Butler Reed, who wasn't even there. He just later x-rayed King Tut's body when it was sent to the museum. And he died three days later. Wow. All of these mysterious deaths around King Tut's tomb. But there were about 58 people present. And 12 years later, only eight people who had been present at this opening had died. It was probably not a real curse. That's a pretty high percentage, though. Not at the time. I mean, it's a high percentage of them to have mysterious deaths. No, just eight people had died. Oh. Out of those people. How many did you just list, though? It was like six. About ten people I listed. But only of the people present at the tomb, only like eight of them died. I'm going with curse. I will say, what probably led to this was these deaths being like noteworthy and noted was because the concept of the mummy's curse had been a big deal in pop culture for a hundred years. Even Louisa May Alcott wrote a book called Lost in a Pyramid, colon, or comma, The Mummy's Curse. 
Is that the sequel or the prequel to Little Women? Prequel. <laughs> this is how Meg got sick. It's not Meg. I've, never I've read actually Little Women. I've never read it either. The only reason I know about it it goes back to that episode of Friends. Yeah. Beth. Yeah. Do you want to put the book in the freezer? Yeah, huh? That's why Beth got sick. It was the mummy's curse because she'd been lost in the pyramid. Makes sense. And of course, this was like a huge news story at the time. And any of these deaths, which could be attributed to a curse, which is a big part of pop culture anyway, sold a lot of newspapers. So if anyone who is even remotely related to King Tut died, it became a front page news story across the globe. Also, the original Egyptian curses were mostly along the lines of May you be eaten by crocodiles or attacked by scorpions or lions or snakes or other forms of the gods coming down to punish you. So basically, may you live in Florida. Yeah. And it was mostly just used to scare off grave grave robbers. That's fair. I mean, we shouldn't be robbing graves. And also, most of Europe would be dead because everybody was desecrating mummies. (laughs) So there probably wasn't a curse. Okay, though, were we desecrating before or after the plague? Both. There we go. Whoa. The plague was just from us messing with mummies? Yeah. The one theory is about this, that there was some killer mold in this ancient tomb. There is not really any evidence to support that. And also, a epidemiologist has stated, the tomb was probably more sanitary than the surrounding area. And this was like, you know, a place full of malaria, diseases, cholera, not really great sanitation to begin with. That was basically everywhere back then, though. Everywhere back then. Even in the 1920s, it's like you're in a remote area, it's going to be pretty gross. And he's about to find a way to connect this to the jazz age again. All of this King Tut stuff was in the 1920s. Austin really hates the jazz age. It, this, was one, this one was completely by accident. I wasn't making fun of the jazz age. I was making fun of curses. I almost did the Straw Hat Riots, which was directly making fun of the jazz age. But I decided, no, no, I've been too mean to the jazz age. And then I got drugged back in completely by mistake. Is this all because you really hate The Great Gatsby? It's such a stupid book. Nothing happens. There's just some bad driving and a weird sign with some glasses on it. I liked it. So that was King Tut. And he didn't do much, but he has become really popular just because he did so little. No one knew he was there to rob his grave. And he cursed everybody. Cursed everybody. You won't convince me otherwise. Even Louisa May Alcott thought so. Mm-hmm. And she, she and I, little, same. She wrote Little Women. She can't be wrong. So are you ready for some questions? How little are these women? Are they like scary little? <laughs> <laughs> so some questions before we go on to open our King Tut's advent calendars. We're going to get probably cursed. don't have curses. Okay, let's go. All right. So will mummy unwrapping parties be on the test? By high school, yes. Well, the fact that King Tut's tomb was so obscure that grave robbers didn't even know it was there to rob from be on the test? I don't think so, because we like to be like, look, there was a king that was your age. You can do great things like have scoliosis and malaria. And marry your half-sister. Hey, if King Tut can do it, you can do it. Will the fact that this curse isn't real, no matter what Brendan Fraser says, be on the test? No, because that's messing with people's religious beliefs, including my own. And finally, this time, after all of these times, will Plenty the Elder make it onto the test? No, not yet. Plenty, we're rooting for you. Someday, someday we'll all learn about Plenty and his wisdoms. That's what we're here for. This is slowly turning into a... Hashtag justice for Plenty. Justice for Plenty. (laughs) Although I have Plenty Blue Car Syndrome now. Because ever since you talked about him, he is popping up 
everywhere. He's been on two episodes of Lorelit recently. You cannot read anything that relates remotely to Roman history without Pliny the Elder showing up. It doesn't even have to relate to it. His name just keeps popping up. I had a completely unrelated recommended tweet come across to me and it was from Pliny the Elder, not the one that is shit Pliny says, which we really dig. It was just another one that's Pliny the Elder, completely unrelated to anything related to Pliny the Elder. Blue car syndrome, man. This is the real curse that we have unleashed upon America. The curse of Pliny? The curse of Pliny. You're welcome, guys. You're welcome, America. <laughs> so you ready to open some things? I am. All you right. Want, so, like I Funko said- Funko Pops or Lego? I'll start with Funko, because I know right. I'm more excited than you are. Yeah. Austin doesn't like Funko Pops because he likes to be wrong. Their faces bore me. <laughs> Your face bores me. That's, that is hurtful. <laughs> it's hurtful that you don't like my Funkos. All right, so I'm going to open first. All right. So December 1st, we have an itty bitty Harry. Oh, he's so tiny. See, Is, is it he, baby Harry or is it regular size it's, Harry? It's just little Harry. And it looks like he's wearing his dress robes. Let me open the rest. Yeah, he's wearing his dress robes. Oh, Look at nice. fancy little Harry. Oh, he's very fancy. All right, what do you got from your what Lego? I got? Also Harry. I got little tiny Harry with his Christmas jumper on. Oh, that's fun. And he's screaming. <laughs> It's probably because his head is torn off. Yes, his head is missing. His head has been torn from his body. Yeah, he does look like he's in pain. I think he's supposed to be smiling because he got, you know, his first ever Christmas. Oh, party. no, it's uh, with the Lego Harry Potter ones. There's one face which they're serious and the other face in which they're terrified on every one of them. Except for Hermione because she's never scared. Harry Potter. All right, so while you're putting him together, what is something you learned about Timothy Dexter today? That he existed, and also he is the American dream, and also he is the worst. <laughs> All right, so am I telling you something I learned about mummies? or Just anything you learned today. <laughs> okay. I learned that the reason we have so much information about King Tut is because we found him so much later, not because of anything important he did. Like, I knew he wasn't exceptionally important, but I figured we just taught about him because he was a kid, and isn't that fun? He is one of the most intact archaeological finds of ancient Egypt in modern history. But not as intact as that puppy they just found. The, the one frozen in the ice? Yeah. Oh. I like, it looks like you could just, you know, put the paddles on it and bring it back. We should probably do a podcast eventually on Iceman, which is like this ancient man they found buried in ice, who when hikers found him, they thought he was a fairly recent death, and there was a big rescue and operation to get him out of there, and it took them to get him down to the hospital before they realized, oh shit, this guy's been dead for thousands of years. Global warming is a scourge that we need to do something about, but the stuff that's been unearthed because of it is really fascinating. Yeah. Also, we learned this week that narwhal bones can be, or narwhal tusks can be used to, to fight off would-be terrorists. And you thought narwhals were worthless and terrifying. I've been slowly coming around on narwhals, but now I'm on board with them. Because this is the second thing I'm allowed to make fun of you about, is that you didn't think narwhals were real. You yes. thought they were like unicorns. Yes, I did not know until I was in my late 20s that narwhals were real. But in fairness, I'd only heard about them a couple of years before, and they were from that narwhal YouTube video, in which case they are just the unicorns of the sea. This is weird to me because I wanted to be a marine biologist growing up like every kid did. I had, and I actually tried to learn about this stuff. I'd never once heard about them. Huh. But yeah, man, Londoners, you don't fuck with Londoners. Like, nope. they will run out of their restaurants with narwhal tusks, and people will show up carrying fire extinguishers, and they will take you down. Yeah. Good job, Londoners. Good job, London. Or actually, I, I know the guy with the narwhal tusk was an immigrant. Yeah. I don't know about the guy with the extinguisher. I'm glad this was pre-Brexit, because, you know, those immigrants are still allowed in England. <laughs> I know. The whole thing is bananas. 
Well, on that downer note, let's plug our socials. We are on Twitter at OnTheTestPod. We are on Facebook, OnTheTestPod. And we have a website now. And we actually are slowly putting up transcripts of our episodes. They are AI transcripts that I kind of loosely go over. But they take hours, guys. So, And we, we don't have money to fund hiring somebody. Yep. If you want us to really have good professional ones, just start sending us money. But our website is www.unthetestpod.com. So we are fully integrated online. Well, we're not on Instagram yet, but I also don't know what we'd post pictures of. Of course, you can always find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash will this be on the test. We post at midnight on that night between Monday and Tuesday. I don't know if you want to call it Monday night or Tuesday morning. I call it, I'll call it Tuesday morning. I'll call it Monday night because I'm still awake and it will not count as that next day until I've slept. I'm calling it Monday morning because I've been asleep for hours. Jerk. Haha. Oh, I'm, Austin's birthday is a week from today? Yeah. So I guess my next podcast will be doing stuff with it on my birthday. Yeah, because even on his birthday, I oh no, it's a week from tomorrow. It's on Monday, isn't it? Yeah, it's a week from, yeah. So I make him work on his birthday. I'm a, I'm a really mean person. She's like, Austin, have you finished researching yet? And then she'll start hitting me. Actually, he's always done before I am. I'm except, the slacker. Except for this time. Yeah, that's true. But I knew pretty early on who I wanted to do for this one. Yeah, and I've, I've, been, str- I've been riding the struggle bus. All right, well, we've been rambling on long enough, so we will let you go. Have a great week, and we will see you next Mon Tuesday. And class, class dismissed. dismissed.